0: Thanks for joining us today on the Bible Readers Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Hartley, high school theology teacher and Catholic convert. In this episode of the Bible Readers Podcast, we continue our journey through the book of Genesis and explore the story of Cain and Abel. We're reading Genesis chapters 4 through 5. And if you've never read it before, or if it's been a while, take a few minutes before listening to this. Open up your Bible and read along. If you're not sure what translation to use, use the one you have. And if you don't have a Bible on hand, use one online. You can find plenty of free Bibles at places like BibleGateway.com. I'll be using the Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition, but feel free to use any version that you'd prefer. Today, we'll be looking at the fateful story of Cain and Abel, and we'll take a closer look at the genealogies that stem from Cain and Seth, their other brother. We'll discuss why the biblical author takes time to record such genealogies and what we can take away from them today. With that said, let's open up the Bible and explore the wonderful story of God's salvation of the world. The story of Cain and Abel is a fascinating story to me for a couple of reasons. One, because there are a lot of quizzical things that happen that don't get a full explanation from the text. That we're we're left to fill in the blanks to the best of our ability. But the other reason I find it so fascinating is it displays the immediate nature of the curses of sin. So, if you remember from last week, and if you haven't listened yet to... Uh, last week's episode on Genesis one through three. Go back and listen to it. it. But if you if you if you listen to it and you remember that Adam and Eve sin, they they're cursed. And re- remember, they're uh, the relationships between man and God, and man and other men, and man and women, and man and nature. They're all broken. That's what happens. That's that's that that is what the curse means. And. How long does it take for that curse to manifest itself in humanity? Well, the story of Cain and Abel tells us not long. It is close to immediate that we see the strife between human beings emerge in violent and horrific ways. So... Cain and Abel are told to produce a sacrifice. Abel is uh, a hunter. He works with animals. He keeps sheep. Cain is a tiller of the ground. He's a farmer. And they're both told to produce sacrifices. And they do. They both bring a sacrifice to God. And, and this is one of those blanks that we, the, the text doesn't completely give us. That for some reason... God accepts Abel's offering and rejects Cain's. Now that, that that's all we get. We get we get that Abel brings some of the firstlings of his of his flock and the fat portions, the good portions of the meat is is, is what Abel brings to God. Um, and and Cain brings to the Lord an offering. From the fruit of the ground. That's the only description we get of Cain. And God accepts Abel's offering and rejects Cain's offering. Now, I think it's fascinating that, uh, like I said, we don't have an exact reason for why God accepts Abel's and rejects Cain's. But I think we can see that there is a difference in... Their sacrifices. First of all, Abel's sacrifice comes from a living animal. He has to kill. He has to shed blood for uh, uh, his sacrifice. And the text also is very clear to emphasize the fact that Abel gives the firstlings of his flock and the fat portions. What does that mean? Firstlings of his flock. This is a a a a sheep. That is without blemish. That's one of the the prime members of his flock. And what p- portions of the animal does he burn to God? The fat portions, right? If you, you you know this, if you have ever tried to choose a really good piece of steak for a nice dinner, what do you want? Well, you want a piece of steak with that beautiful marbling that's gonna have all that fat that just renders into the meat, right? That is that is the portion that abel produces for god he gives him his best what do we know about cain's offering really only one thing that it is from the fruit of the ground he brings him something that he has grown that's not necessarily bad We're going to see in uh, the book of Leviticus that there are things like grain offerings that can be produced to God. So it's not necessarily that this is out of hand. But the author does not take the time to emphasize the prime nature of Cain's sacrifice. So I think there might be a small hint there. The Catholic Encyclopedia says that this implies that Cain committed the fault of presenting to God imperfect gifts, reserving to himself the better part of the produce of the land. Now, in, again, I'm reading from the, the Catholic encyclopedia. It quotes St. Augustine, who says that he understood the division in a different way. Cain, he tells us, God gave a better part of his goods, but he did not give him his heart. That's St. Augustine's interpretation. Now, whichever one is more correct, I don't know that we have a clear, decisive reason from the text. But we do know this that there is a reason that God accepts Abel's sacrifice and rejects Cain's. Now, you might see that and think, well, this is unjust. Or, or God's being unfair, or he's just showing favoritism, or he's being ornery. I'm not sure. But, but what we see from God's response, he rejects Cain's, he accepts Abel's, but he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just leave it at, Cain, I've rejected your offering. Instead, the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well sin is lurking at the door. It's it's desire is for you, but you must master it. So so God goes to Cain and and he can tell Cain is angry. Cain is upset that his sacrifice has been rejected, but God's response to him is not one of angry vindictiveness. Instead, God comes to Cain and invites him Further into communion for him, or or into communion with him, he says, "Cain, this sacrifice was rejected, but Cain, you can bring me a sacrifice which I will accept." I'm inviting you into communion. Now, keep that keep that in mind because we're going to see that happen again in this text, where God offers, he extends an invitation to Cain, and it is rejected. So Cain's response to God's invitation is not one of submission or acceptance. It is to hate, right? He, he doesn't take God's warning to watch out for the, the, the lurking sin that, that stands behind the door ready to master him. He kills his brother, Abel. He murders him. Now this is obviously evil. Cain murdering Abel and God comes to Cain and in a scene very reminiscent of Genesis chapter 3 God says where is Abel your brother now again just like we saw in the garden right Adam and Eve they eat the fruit they they uh, know that they're naked and they, they hide themselves, and then they hear God walking through the forest, through through the garden, and uh, in this highly symbolic text, right? God's walking, and, and God says, what have you done? Who told you that you were naked? And what's fascinating to me about this, and I mentioned this last week, is that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows the answer to this question. So when he comes to Cain... In Genesis chapter 4, and says, where is your brother? He's not asking because he's not sure. He, he God is not asking Cain because he's like, gosh, I've been looking everywhere for Abel. I can't find him. Cain, can you help me out? That's not what's happening here. No. What is God doing? He's doing exactly what he did a few verses ago. He's inviting Cain into communion. He's inviting Cain to confession. Where is your brother, Cain? Tell me. And similar to how Adam responded to God in the garden, Cain says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Does he accept God's offer of confession? No. Instead, he lies. And then he asks a question which is fascinating. Am I my brother's keeper? What's what's interesting to me about this is, is the answer to that question I would think is yes. Is it my responsibility to take care of my brother? Uh, yeah, it is. So not only, not only does Cain reject God's offer of confession and of repentance, He lies to God and then asks a question, trying to absolve himself of any responsibility toward taking care of his brother. And God says, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And Cain is caught. And Cain is cursed. He is cursed again. So, The pattern that we saw established in Genesis chapter 3 manifests itself immediately in the story of Cain and Abel. Humanity wastes no time descending into violence and murder. That's what happens, right? That's what happens when humankind is separated from God. They descend into destruction. Now, God actually has mercy on Cain here. Instead of instead of giving him the just reward for his actions, right, which presumably would be death, he he banishes Cain again. Just like we saw how, how how Adam is banished, he is he is told that instead of just the, the curse of Adam that the ground will be hard to work, Cain will not be able to grow anything from the ground and he will be a a, a wanderer. And and Cain is given a mark on his on his person that will keep other people from killing him. Do we know what this mark is? No, we, we don't. There's, there, is, there is nothing in the text that gives us an indication uh, for what the Mark of Cain is. Um, I have heard before that the Mark of Cain is that he is given black skin. Uh, the first thing I want to say about that is there is absolutely nothing in the text that would cause us to think that. And secondly, I am reasonably certain that that interpretation of the Mark of Cain is... Based in historical racism, so I, I'm not friendly toward that interpretation, uh, and I don't really think we're given anything. I think we're just told he's given this mark. It, it it in some way will be a warning to those not to attack and kill him, because if you kill Cain, you yourself will be cursed. And Cain goes, and that's the story of Cain and Abel. That's really it. There, there, there's not much more to it. Uh, I, I will say there's there's an interesting passage uh, in the New Testament in in Hebrews chapter twelve. Um, God's statement to Cain there after he asks uh, Cain where uh, Abel is, and and Cain says Cain says uh, uh, your brother the blood of your brother cries out to me. Um, the author of the book of Hebrews interprets this as a messianic or Christological picture. That the, 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 suf- the one who suffers for a righteous sacrifice and is murdered and his blood speaks from the ground. Uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 24 it says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. I it's that's interesting. Because what the author of Hebrews is saying is, Hey, in, 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 the, in the book of Genesis, when we read about the blood of Abel speaking from the ground, what is it speaking? It speaks a statement of judgment upon his brother. And what does the blood of Jesus speak from the tomb? It speaks grace. And that's interesting. So that's Cain and Abel. Boom. We have the immediate manifestation of the curses of sin. We have the immediate manifestation of the brokenness of humanity. Um, and, and, and now we're going to get something really interesting. Um, and this is something that we so often when we read the Bible just gloss over. Because let's be honest. The Bible is really old. It's really old. And because it's really old... It can be really confusing, and the culture is different, and the historical context is massively different. And and when we read stuff that's strange, sometimes we just gloss over it like, oh, that's weird Bible talk. I'm just going to pass over this like it's not important. And I don't want you to do that, because I, I think it's really important when we get to places in the Scriptures that we don't understand, And it, it, instead of just passing over it and be like, that's just weird Bible whatever, It's important to actually dig deeper, find some resources, find some commentaries, find some books, and and explore deeper into it. So when I get to Genesis chapter 4 verse 17 and Genesis 5, the entirety of Genesis 5, I tend, if you're like me, we tend to our eyes glaze over because we're just reading names that are really difficult to pronounce and numbers about lives outrageously long and it's strange and we also go what's the point like somebody spent time recording all of these things why like this is some kind of like pointless ancestry.com exploration um into the bible why is it there so what I want to do now is I want to take a look at these two genealogies. We get the genealogy of Cain in, in, in Genesis 4, 17. And then we're going to get the, the, the genealogy of Seth in Genesis chapter 5. Now, before we talk about that, really briefly, I just want to address uh, the name of Seth and look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. It says this, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another child instead of Abel, for Cain slew him. Okay, Seth is interesting. He is the third son of Adam and Eve. Abel is dead. Cain is cast away. He is uh, exiled and he's a murderer. And then Seth is born. Now the reason I find this fascinating is because the Hebrew word Seth literally means name. His name means name. That is important because what we're going to see... Throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, it begins here is there is a theme of the name, the one who carries on the name, and there's this blessing that goes along with the name. And Seth is the first holder of that blessing after Adam. And the way we get this signified is that we see his name, which is Seth name. Okay, so the two genealogies we're going to contrast here are the genealogies of Cain of and the gene- genealogy of Seth let's look at Cain's first so if you compare these two if you put them up next to each other you'd notice a couple of things the first thing you would notice is that the genealogy of Cain is much shorter it's much shorter um, and I think this is an indication uh, that the story is no longer going to track with the descendants of Cain, because they are not the ones who take on the family name, Seth. And the other indication we get of that is the fact that Cain, him and his his descendants are not given any uh, numbers for how long they live. Now, in each genealogy, there is one person that stands out. and in gene the genealogy of Cain, the, it is the sixth man in the genealogy. The sixth man of the genealogy, and his name is Lamech, and we we learn a little something about Lamech. Uh, and if you want to look at chapter four, verse twenty-three, we get this about Lamech. Lamech said to his wives Ada and Zillah. First of all, this is the first the first recording in the Bible of polygamy, and and this in this instance it's bigamy. Uh, You'll, you'll notice throughout the, much of the Old Testament, especially the, the book of, of Genesis, uh, that there are certainly multiple instances of polygamy. And oftentimes it is not expressly, it's, real, it's never expressly forbidden or condemned in the Old Testament. Now, I think the reason for this is, is because the Old Testament is very subtle in the way it communicates. Because it's, it's not simply a book of rules, of do's and don'ts. It's a story. So the storyteller is going to communicate through a couple of different ways. And one of the ways it's going to do it, especially in the book of Genesis, is by association. So yes, we find out about Lamech. Lamech is, is a polygamist. He's a bigamist. Uh, it doesn't expressly rebuke him for that. But what it does do is it associates him with cain the murderer it associates him with cain and also we get the actions of lamech what does lamech do we first find him speaking to his two wives and what does he say i have slain a young man for wounding me a a a man for striking me if cain is avenged sevenfold truly lamech is 77 fold so he comes to his wives after a day out and says somebody insulted me They, they they ran into me uh, they, they bumped into me, they spilled my drink at the bar, they cut me off in traffic, and what did I do? I went and killed him. And also, why is he telling his wives this? It's intimidation. It, it, he's lording it over them. Don't you try me? Know this, I am an exceptionally violent man. This is our first polygamist. So no, we don't have a direct rebuke of this in this verse but I think by association what do we see that polygamy is implicitly associated with evil so Lamech that's who we find out about that's the that's the number one person we're going to learn about in in the the genealogy of Cain besides the progenitor Cain the, the other thing we learn about about the Cainites um, don't be don't confuse them later with the Canaanites. They're not necessarily the same people. The Canaanites, uh the, the the children of Cain is that uh they uh Cain's son Enoch builds the first city and he names it after himself. He names the city Enoch. Um which is fascinating because we'll contrast that with Seth later on. Uh and, and we also find out that Cain's descendants are the forgers of instruments of bronze and iron. So Cain, we have violence, murder, the creation of, of instruments of bronze and iron, i.e. weapons, and the establishment of human civilization. Now again, I think this is all highly symbolic. Um, I do think we have to take some of this as being uh, historically Literal, but I I think some of these things, especially when it comes to the 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 buildings of civilization, as Cain is Cain's descendants are the only ones doing this. I don't think we necessarily have to take that stringent of a view here. But what is the author doing? He is associating the beginnings of civilization with the violence of Cain, implicitly showing that the curse that extends from Adam and Eve has filled the whole world now let's contrast Cain's genealogy with that of seth's first of all we learn much more about each individual in the genealogy of seth we get how old they were when they bore their first son we get how old they were when they died uh these these the, the the lifespans are incredibly long um, there are a couple of different theories on that. Uh, the first theory is that you can just take this as like these people literally lived hundreds of years. I think that's a perfectly acceptable view. Um, it's it's implied that there is no death at the beginning of the 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 of creation. So it would make sense that as death is introduced, these people's lives go from <laughs> uh, everlasting, if you will, to uh, to slowly going down until God sees their wickedness and, and cuts off their days to being no more than 120 years of life. Uh, here's the other thing that, that is fascinating about this. Uh, here's the other thing that's interesting to me about this passage. Is Who does it start with? The book of the generations of Adam. And then where does it go? When God created man... He made him in the likeness of God. What is it reiterating there? That Adam is the son of God. The genealogy of Seth doesn't begin with Seth. It doesn't even begin with Adam. It begins with God. And when Adam had lived 130 years to be father of a son in his own likeness, you see what happened there? Adam is made in the likeness of God. Adam has a son who is in his own likeness. The image of God transferring from each human. After his image, and he named him Seth. The days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800, and he had other sons and daughters. So, the genealogy begins with God. It goes all the way back to him. Here's the other thing. We find out, I said, about one particular character In each genealogy. In the first one, it was Lamech. In Cain's genealogy, it's Lamech, the bigamist and the murderer. Who is it in Cain's genealogy? Well, we hear about a man named Enoch. Now, in Cain's genealogy, there's also a man named Enoch. This isn't the same one. There's a man named Enoch. And and what do we learn about Enoch? Well, Enoch lives for 65 years, And then he became the father of Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after the birth of Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. So first of all, how old is he? Well, he is 365. Now, the the ancient Hebrews viewed numbers very symbolically. What is this? It's the full number of days in a year. This This is the perfect number. That's how long Enoch lives. Then, we hear about this. Enoch walked with God. And then he was not, for God took him. Enoch walks with God. We haven't seen anyone walking with God since the days of Adam before the fall. What is God doing? He walks in the garden. Now, Enoch for some reason, has an incredibly close relationship with God. He's exceedingly righteous, and so much so that he doesn't even die. Or at least that's what the language implies. It says, he walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. Essentially implying that God assumes him into heaven. Which presumably, what, 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 uh, which presumably would have been what would have happened to Adam. Had he not fallen into sin. So we learn about Enoch and we learn about Lamech. Lamech is the 6th person in this genealogy. Enoch is the 7th. Now, we didn't end up talking about this a lot. It's one of the things when it comes to Genesis 1 through 3, you can talk about so much and we just only had so much time. We didn't talk very much about the day of rest that God takes on the 7th day. And God doesn't rest because he's tired, he's worn out, he's sleepy. He rests because it's communicating a state of peace and harmony, of communion. And who is it that we learn about in Lamech's, or Enoch's genealogy? Lamech, the sixth, the incomplete number. Who is it that we learn about in Seth's generations? The seventh, Enoch. The number of fullness and of rest. That's what we find out about. I want to make one more point here. And it goes back to chapter 4, verse 26. It says, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time men began to call upon the name of the Lord. You see the contrast there? Cain's lineage. They build a city, and what do they do? They name it after themselves. Seth the carrier of the name of God the the one the, the one whose name is name what does he do he calls upon not his own name but upon the name of the Lord and these are the ra- the righteous men the one through whom the blessing of God to Adam even though they've sinned and been cursed that the 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 blessing that God gives them in Genesis chapter one chapters 1 and 2 doesn't go away but that is passed on from adam to seth and all the way down down on the line until we get to a man you may have heard of Well, that's it for us today on the Bible Readers Podcast. Thanks for joining me as I explore the great story of the Bible. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave me a five star rating on iTunes. And please share this podcast with anyone you know who wants to learn more about the Bible. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Bible Readers Podcast. And if you like the show, you can ask me questions and engage in some great discussion on the posts. Be on the lookout later this week. Uh, for my interview when I sat down with Dr. Matthew Sakanikas, who is the chair of the theology department at Christendom College. I sat down with Dr. Sakanikas earlier this month to get his insight on how he reads the book of Genesis, and he gave some incredible commentary. You're not going to want to miss it. Next week, we'll be reading Genesis chapters 6 through 9, so if you want to read along, read those chapters before next Monday. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of these great lessons and discussions. And thanks again for joining me. I'll see you next time on the Bible Readers Podcast.